This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The Whistler ran from 1942 until 1955 on the West Coast Regional CBS Network. The show was also broadcast in Chicago and over Armed Forces Radio. Each episode of The Whistler began with the sound of footsteps and a person whistling. And by the way, the Saint radio series with Vincent Price used a similar opening. The haunting signature theme tune was composed by Wilbur Hatch and featured Dorothy Roberts whistling with an orchestra. A character known only as the Whistler, as the host and narrator of the tales, which focused on crime and fate. He often commented directly upon the action in the manner of a Greek chorus, taunting the characters, guilty or innocent. The stories followed a formula in which a person's criminal acts were typically undone either by an overlooked but important detail or by the criminal's own stupidity. An ironic ending, often grim, was a key feature of each episode. Bill Foreman had the title role of The Whistler for the longest period of time. Others who portrayed The Whistler in various times were Gail Gordon, uh, Marvin Miller, the actor who portrayed Michael Anthony on TV's The Millionaire. Of the 692 episodes, over 200 no longer exist. The Whistler seldom featured any major Hollywood stars, but the quality of writing and performances made it a radio mainstay. So, let's go to an episode that was first broadcast in 1950 entitled Strange Meeting. And now, stay tuned for the program that has rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. S-I-T-N-A-L Signal Signal gas for me Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline Invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story By The Whistler For extra driving pleasure, the signal to look for is the yellow and black circle sign That identifies signal service stations from Canada to Mexico And for Sunday evening listening pleasure, the signal to listen for is this whistle that identifies the signal oil program, the Whistler. I am the Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now, for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's Strange Story. 
Strange Meeting. The questioning was over, and the prefect of police was smiling triumphantly. He no longer regretted leaving his bed and hurrying through the rain-swept streets of Paris to the tiny prison on the outskirts of the city. There was little doubt of the suspect's guilt in connection with the death in an abandoned building just off the Rue Laborde. A policeman had caught the man running from the scene of the crime. The murder weapon had been found in his pocket. Paraffin tests had shown that he'd fired the gun. Ballistics proved the bullet found in the victim had been fired from the suspect's gun. But there was more to the case, a great deal more. From the facts he'd already learned, the prefect could trace the beginning of the incident back to the seemingly routine arrival of a commercial plane from Lisbon earlier in the week. The plane was late as it circled the field. So was the hour. And the landing field looked very inviting to Wally Fraser, freelance news photographer, and almost anything else that would bring him a welcome dollar. He was pleased that the trip was over. Paris meant rest and relaxation to him. There was another reason, too, a very attractive reason, seated just across the aisle. Wally had tried to strike up an acquaintance with a girl early in the trip, but because of her cold, indifferent stares, he'd given up. As the plane landed and taxied to a stop at the unloading ramp, he received a startling surprise. He was picking up his camera when she hesitated at the door of the plane, turned and grabbed him. Oh, darling, I'm sorry. It's goodbye. What? But... <laughs> Until we meet again. But... Excuse me. I... I... Hey, wait a minute. What? Hey, did you see that, mister? All the way from Lisbon, the dame won't let out a peep, and then she rushes up and kisses me. It is the effect of the city, monsieur. Paris, the gay, the exciting. Yeah. Uh, why do I ever leave? Uh, excuse me, monsieur. Excuse me. I got to go after her. You hurry through the crowd after the girl, reach the passenger waiting room. She's nowhere in sight, is she, Wally? You've lost her. You're still annoyed and wondering as you claim your baggage and arrange for it to be sent to your hotel. Outside, you hail a cab. Hotel Metropole, driver. Oui, monsieur. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Huh? There she is. I see her. Ah, oui. Wait, monsieur. What is wrong? What? Well, the young lady, her companions, they are the police. Police? Oui. And they're taking her in the car. You wish to follow your friend, monsieur? Or is it still the hotel? Ah, it's the hotel. Uh, we. Oui. I'm tired. I've been in enough trouble the past few weeks. Uh, we, oui, monsieur. Come on, don't you think I mean it? I said the hotel. We, oui, monsieur. You know best. But you can't get the girl out of your mind, can you, Wally? In the taxi cab, and after you arrive at the hotel, her face haunts you. And only complete weariness keeps you from lying awake, thinking about it further. The next morning, she's completely out of your mind. Until you make the discovery. The envelope in the pocket of your overcoat. Even as you tear it open, you know that she must have put it there during that moment when she kissed you and then ran off. The envelope contains a negative of some kind, doesn't it? But it's nothing like anything that you use in your work, is it, Wally? 
Your curiosity aroused, you go downstairs for a quick breakfast, make an inquiry at the hotel desk, and then walk several blocks to a small laboratory across the street from a medical building. A weary, seemingly disinterested lab attendant gives you the answer. An X-ray film, monsieur. That is what this is. Just ordinary X-ray? That is right. Here, I will see what it is. Put it on the light frame. Mm-hmm. A skull. A man's head. This man has some sort of a plate in his head, you see? Huh. Uh, would that be his name there on the corner? No, no. That is the name of the doctor who made the X-ray. Uh, Salazar. It looks like Dr. Salazar. Uh Uh-huh. Also, the date he took it. I... Uh, You were saying? Uh, Nothing. Hey, excuse me for a minute, will you? I'll be right back. Yeah, sure. You stare after the attendant curiously as he steps out of the room. There was an odd expression on his face, wasn't there, Wally? Very odd. You move after him quietly, open the door to the adjoining office and hear him dialing the phone. Hello, hello. Police. Beat. Police. You whirl on the attendant's words, cross the room, and hastily remove the X-ray film from the frame and put it in your pocket. As you start to leave, the attendant blocks your way. And now, as I was saying, monsieur... I'm sorry, Jack. Everything's been said. Everything but this... Now I'll look into this little deal that's so interesting to the police. interesting to you, too, isn't it, Wally? This strange matter of the X-ray film, so interesting to the Paris police. It began when you stepped off the plane from Lisbon. You know that it's somehow connected with a mysterious girl who kissed you and then hurried away to try and lose herself in the crowd at the airport. You're sure that she planted the X-ray film in your pocket, but you don't know why or what it means. It's enough to send the lab attendant scurrying to his telephone and then trying to prevent you from leaving his office. You don't like it. And back in your hotel, there's something more that you don't like. The appearance of your room. It's been ransacked from floor to ceiling, and everything is a shambles. You stare around you, wondering, and then hear someone go past in the hall outside. By the time you can open the door and look out, she's reached the end of the hall. But it's the same girl, isn't it, Wally? The same girl who kissed you on the plane. You're sure she didn't see you, so you race down the lobby in time to see her leave the hotel and enter another one directly across the street. There, she puts through a call on one of the room phones in the lobby. Unnoticed, you stand close by, hide behind a newspaper, and listen. Roommate 12, please. Yes, thank you. Hello? Hello, Mr. Sidney. This is Marta Varney. I just arrived. What? Oh, then you read about it. Yes, that end of it is closed. Dr. Salazar won't interfere with us. No, I haven't got it with me right now. 
I only wanted you to know I was here and that we'll be able to make the deal soon. Yes, I'll get in touch with you. Goodbye, Mr. Sidney. Oh, sorry if I kept you waiting for this for... Hello, honey. Your turn to be surprised, huh? If you don't mind, I... Oh, but I do mind. You're not going anyplace. That is, not until we talk. There's nothing to talk about, Mr... Uh, Frazier. The few friends I have call me Wally. That's fine, Mr. Frazier. Oh, you don't want to be friendly, huh? Well, I'm not surprised. Not after the way you tore my room up. Uh, this what you were looking for? Give that to me. Oh, no, no. Not so fast. There isn't anything. It's just a negative of a picture of my aunt. She's 73. And likes to tell fairy tales just like you. (laughs) No, honey. I take pictures for a living, and this is an (laughs) X-ray. All right. But it still belongs to my aunt. Oh, sure, sure. (laughs) You don't give up easy. But you wouldn't. Not when you can think fast enough to get rid of it the way you did when the police showed up. The police? Uh Uh-huh. I saw them take you away at the airport. Now, come on. Tell Uncle Wally what it's all about, huh? Who's noggin' if we got a picture of? And what happened to dear old Dr. Salazar? Will you give it back to me? Uh, maybe. Come on. The bar's a good place to talk. But I've already told you, Mr. Frazier. The X-ray film was given to me. I was instructed to bring it here to Paris. But it's very important to you and the police. Or you wouldn't have slipped it into my pocket when you saw the cops. Yes. It's important. Why? Why is it important? Because... Well, you're a stranger here. So I might as well tell you the truth. Good. It proves that a man named Duguay is still alive. Duguay? Yes. France's former public enemy, number one. An international swindler, gangster, a murderer. He was believed to have died in an explosion some years ago. And just how does an X-ray prove he's alive? The silver plate in his skull? Yes, the design is so unusual. It's as if the surgeon who performed the operation had placed his signature on it. No other one like it, huh? Nowhere in the world. The case was written up in medical journals many times. There were photographs of the Duguay X-ray. I checked Dr. Salazar's X-ray against them very carefully. There's no mistaking it. Okay. And now that you've stopped telling fairy tales, how did you get hold of the X-ray? There was an automobile accident in Lisbon three weeks ago. A man, unconscious, was taken into a Dr. Salazar's office. I... I was the doctor's assistant. And he took the X-ray, only Dugane didn't know about it. He knows now. Ah, I see. (laughs) A shakedown. He pays off or the X-ray goes to the cops. That's neat. That's very neat. That uh, X-ray ought to be worth a lot of dough. That's right. How much is Dugain good for? My contact with Mr. Dugain says Dugain is a very wealthy, respected citizen now. Uh-huh. What uh, name does Dugain go under? Nobody knows that except my contact. How do you get in touch with Dugain? If I knew, Mr. Fraser, do you think me foolish enough to tell you? <laughs> no. Mm. But uh, maybe your partner could. Partner? Your contact, Mr. Sidney. Mr. Sidney? Yeah, I overheard you talking to Mr. Sidney on the phone just now. Oh, I see. Look, sweetheart, we got a good deal here, except for one thing. How do we get to this guy, Duguay? You think you could persuade Mr. Sidney to give you that information? What do you have in mind, Mr. Frazier? What's your deal with Sidney? A percentage. How'd you like to split 50-50? We could cut off Mr. S, set up a partnership of our own, the two of us. 
That would be dangerous. Our partnership? No. Eliminating Mr. Sidney. No, we could try. Yes. We could. Well, how about it? I don't know. Make it over, Marta. Um, in the meantime, I'll just hold on to the film. Huh? You can give me your answer tonight at dinner. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a quiet little place just around the corner. Candlelight, good wines, excellent food. <laughs> there always is in Paris. All right. Oh, and another thing. Mm -hmm. How do you know, Dr. Salazar, I won't remember those medical magazine articles about Dugain and the Platonist skull? Dr. Salazar is dead. Oh. An accident? Yes. What kind of an accident? He was killed with a pair of scissors. Why do you ask? Uh... No reason. I just wondered. Hello? Mr. Sidney, this is your new partner. Partner? Partner? I'm afraid I don't understand. Well, we're in business, Mr. Sidney, the two of us, with uh, an X-ray film. Do you think Mr. Dugain will be interested? Oh, I see. I see. Uh, yes, I dare say he will be. Definitely, sir. Good. Then let's talk. I'm calling from the lobby now. I think we could talk better in your room. Yes, indeed, sir. Come right up. Come in, sir. Come in. <laughs> Did I interrupt a game of solitaire? Oh, quite all right, sir, quite all right. I was bored. In Paris? <laughs> Sit down. Sit down. Thank you. Brandy? Uh, yes, thanks. You're an American? Oh, better than that. I'm a native of Dallas. Are you now? Well, well. <laughs> Water, Mr. Uh, uh, don't ruin the brandy. Uh, the name is Fraser. Wally Fraser. There you are, sir. Thank you. Now, Mr. Fraser. Well, let's, uh... Get right to the point, huh? Precisely, sir. To the point. To shake down Citizen Dugain, you'll need a certain X-ray. Right? May I ask, sir, how did you come to know... Your partner, Miss Varney, she told me all about it. Oh, I see. Uh, don't blame her too much. She didn't mean to tell me anything. The pressure was on. She had to get rid of the X-ray temporarily. Good thing she did. The cops would have grabbed it. Yes. Yes, go on, Mr. Fraser. What else did she tell you? Well, uh, not much more. That's the trouble. So you want to do business with me? Right. We uh, cut Martavani out of the deal, split it 50-50. Uh, I'm afraid it's not that simple, sir. Miss Varney could be dangerous. Huh? If we were to, as you put it, cut her out of the deal, she might very well get word to Dugane. She knows how to get to Dugane? Of course. Oh, I see. She told you she didn't. Yeah. Yes, and that's why you came to me. I'm glad you did, Mr. Fraser. Uh, so am I. Now? You don't trust women, do you? Oh, not since I was in high school. I let a sophomore borrow my yo-yo and she tied a knot in the string. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Fraser. Yeah? When can I have the X-ray film? Uh, as soon as you set up the contact with Dugane, we'll go to the payoff together. Fair enough. In the meantime, however... There's Marta Varney. Precisely, sir. We've a good thing here. Big payoff. Mr. Dugain can well afford to pay enough for that X-ray to keep us for years. But he's also a killer. We must be careful. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. But, uh, 
How do we cut Miss Varney out of the deal? We can't be squeamish, sir. After all, Miss Varney is a murderess. Killed Dr. Salazar, you know. Yeah, she did, didn't she? Uh, how do we do it? How it's done isn't important, Mr. Fraser. We'll leave that up to the one who does the job, eh? Well, now, now, wait a minute. One I... of us must do it, Mr. Fraser. Well, yes, but I, I... We'll cut for the honor, sir. That's fair, is it not? Well, I, I don't know. I... Come, Mr. Fraser, you said we were partners. Cut. Well, sir? Okay. Queen. <laughs> Seven of diamonds. Well, it's up to me, sir. I shall arrange a meeting with the girl tonight. Uh, Miss, Miss Varney and I are going to dinner together. Excellent. Where? Julian. Good. After dinner, you will take a stroll along the Rue de Celestin, toward the river. The street becomes narrow, dark, a block beyond the carousel. I will be there. Okay. A block beyond the merry-go-round. But, uh, Mr. Sidney, don't try pulling a fast one. If anything happens to be, you'll never get that x-ray. I won't have it with me. Naturally not, Mr. Fraser. I'm sure you're much too careful. Where are we going, Mr. Fraser? Uh, no place in particular. Huh? Thought a stroll would do us both good after dinner like the one we've had. <laughs> it was excellent. Though I must say you were rather quiet through it all. Uh, what's that? Mm-hmm. Things on your mind? Uh, yeah, yeah. You haven't asked me yet if I've decided about our partnership. Well, I hate to discuss business at dinner. I see. Oh, look up ahead. It's merry-go-round. Shall we, Mr. Fraser? Marta. Hmm? How about that partnership? Well, I thought it over very carefully, Mr. Fraser. Very carefully. Let's turn back. We've got to talk. There's nothing to talk about, really. Let's go on. I want to see the river. No, forget it. I, I insist, Mr. Fraser. What? Hey, wait a minute. What? That's a gun in my coat pocket, Wally, darling. I won't hesitate to pull the trigger. So that's your answer. It is. I have decided not to enter a partnership with you. Prefer to take your cut with Mr. Sidney? <laughs> Wrong again. I'm not splitting anything with him, either. Oh. Going all out on your own, huh? That's it, Wally. That's exactly it. Now, shall we continue our stroll? Okay. Hmm. Uh, aren't you forgetting one thing? You can't make a deal with Dugane unless you have the x-ray. I intend to get it from you. You think I'm carrying it around in my hat, man? I know where it is. I followed you this afternoon, so you put it in a postal box. You will give me the key, won't you? Will I? Of course. If you don't, I'll simply take it. And then what happens? I wind up in the river? Perhaps. I haven't decided yet. Keep walking, Mr. Frazier. Straight ahead. It's ironic, isn't it, Wally? At the point of a gun, Marta forces you to walk a block beyond the carousel, straight into the trap you and Mr. Sidney had planned for her. Suddenly, Mr. Sidney steps out of the darkness. There's the flash of the knife, 
and Marta Varney lies dead at your feet. You stare down at her and then feel a tugging at your sleeve. You turn and hurry away with Mr. Sidney. And then later, in a small bar, he explains the next move. I have already made the arrangement, sir. We will meet Monsieur Dugain's courier in half an hour just off the Rue Labord. The Rue Labord, huh? Okay. You are sure he's got it straight? He has, sir. When we meet, you are to give him the key to the postal box where the X-ray is. Yeah. In return, he will hand over the money. Right. <laughs> I sort of like that arrangement, don't you, Mr. Sidney? The uh, <laughs> cautious approach. All-around protection. Huh? <laughs> Quite right, sir. <laughs> Shall we drink up? You smile back at Mr. Sidney as you raise your glass. He doesn't know what's in store for him, does he? Once you have completed the transaction with Dugain's courier and gotten the money, you know that you can take care of Sidney and have all the money for yourself. You find you're not the least bit sorry about having to kill him. Perhaps it's because of Marta Varney. He's disposing of her the way that he did. Yes. Somehow that makes it easier for you to kill him. To us, Mr. Fraser. To our partnership and to many years of good living on Monsieur Dugain's money. <laughs> <laughs> to us, Mr. Sidney. And to Monsieur Dugain. Yeah. And now, how about keeping our appointment with new Dugain's courier, Questioning was over, and the prefect of police was smiling triumphantly as he handed the signed murder confession and a postal box key to one of his assistants. After the prisoner had been led away, the prefect waited patiently for his assistant to return with the contents of the postal box. Then, upon his return, the prefect examined the X-ray and smiled with satisfaction. He then pulled his coat about him and stepped out into the rainy streets of Paris and hurried back to his house. And there, standing before the fireplace, his hands clasped behind his back, he unfolded the story to his wife as she prepared his morning coffee. Finally, the narrative over, he sat down at the table. Just think, Hortense. Three killings over an X-ray. Blackmail. <laughs> when will these fools learn? When? But, René, how was it the killer confessed so quickly? It was his only hope for leniency. After all, we caught him running from the scene of the crime. Oh. Ballistics proved his gun fired the shot. His only hope of avoiding the guillotine was to cooperate with the police. Then uh, this American, this Monsieur Fraser... Never found out the truth. Ah. Monsieur Sidney killed him before Fraser had a chance to learn that Monsieur Sidney and Dugain are one. The same person. The X-ray film found in the postal box proves it beyond any doubt. Whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine automotive accessories. Remember, if you would like the fun of having your friends hear a limerick of yours on The Whistler, 
The address to which to send it is The Signal Oil Company, Los Angeles 55, California. All limericks become the property of The Signal Oil Company. Those selected for use on the Whistler will be chosen by our advertising representatives on the basis of humor, suitability, and originality. So, of course, they must be your own composition. Featured in tonight's story were Bill Foreman, William Conrad, Betty Lou Gerson, and John Hoyt. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Joel Malone, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Remember at the same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. S-I-T-N-A-L Stay tuned for Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 at 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Time now for the Martin and Lewis Show. Let's laugh, laugh! <laughs> it's the Martin and Lewis Show! Wow! The National Broadcasting Company brings you transcribed from New York, the Martin and Lewis Show. Our guest today, Burl Ives, and featuring Flo McMichael, Dick Stabile, and his orchestra, and starring Dean Martin. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. Everybody falls in love somehow. And Jerry Lewis. Without music. If you think candy's sweet, there's a girl you ought to meet. Sugar drips from her lips when she sighs. But a love light that lies within my baby's eyes How it lies, how it lies, how it lies She has style, she has charms And a pair of loving arms That I'm dying to try on for size But the love light that lies within my Baby's eyes, how it lies, how it lies, how it lies. Oh, her name tops the list of every florist. Her bows are standing ten deep in line. With all of the trees in the forest, why should I be the only clinging vine? There's heartbreak in store With the one that you adore 
is a devil in the angel's disguise. But the love light that lies is the love light that dies. How it lies, how it lies, how it lies. Well, Jerry and Dean are all excited because today they're going to record a new song for Capitol Records. We find them home in their apartment talking it over while they eat breakfast. Gee, Dean, I'm all excited about making another record for Capitol, aren't you? Sure, Jerry. Remember the fun we had making our first one? The money song in that certain party? Yeah, those were good songs, too. I wonder what song they've picked out for us to record this time. Well, don't worry about it now, Dean. Eat your breakfast. Uh, say, Jerry. Yeah, Dean. I want to compliment you on your cooking. This is the best coffee you ever made. You really like that coffee? No, I sure do. That's funny. It's molasses for the pancakes. <laughs> hey, speaking of pancakes, uh, where are they? I was going to tell you about the pancakes, Dean. I wanted them to raise up nice and fluffy, so I added some yeast. Oh, yeast? Well, how much did you add? Well, the cakes are very small. I only threw in two dozen. <laughs> two dozen yeast? And what happened? You may not believe this, Dean, but our kitchen is now 27 feet high. Oh, there you go again. You're exaggerating it. Now, stop kidding around. I'm going to look through this mail. You're really proud of me, huh, Dean? I already complimented you, Jerry. I know, but gee, it's the first breakfast I ever cooked. Honest, Dean, what did you actually think of it? Well, Jerry, a true friend would answer that in, uh, in one or two ways. If he likes it, he'd say so, and if he didn't like it, he'd change the subject. Well? So how's the family? <laughs> Look here, Dean Martin, I'm sick of your insinuations. That's all I get around here. And to think that I've given you the best years of my life. Oh, Jerry. It's true. I spent the best years of my life bending over a hot stove. Every day a hot stove, hot stove, hot stove. And Dean... What? Would you buy me an asbestos apron? <laughs> I'm ruining my Hickok belt buckle. Well, we'll see about that. Have some toast, Dean? I just took it out of the toaster. Jerry, look at all the burnt black edges on the toast. Scrape it off first. Okay, I'll scrape it. Well, now for the other side. <laughs> well, we better hurry, Jerry. We record at 11 o'clock, and we still have to find out what song we're going to sing. I'm almost ready, Dean. I hope we can sing a good fast tune. Everybody likes a good fast tune. Well, according to our contract, we have to sing whatever they pick out, and I, uh, I sure hope they remember that uh, my voice is classified as a baritone. I wonder what I'm classified as. Well, offhand, I'd say you were a necessary evil. Necessary evil? How can you say that when all week I've been practicing pear-shaped tones? And just how have you been getting pear-shaped tones? Every morning I stick the Dick Tracy comic strip in my mouth and swallow it. <laughs> Every morning I stick the comic strip in my mouth and swallow I wish I was dead. <laughs> Jerry, we got to see Mr. Allen at 11 o'clock to talk about our next recording. We better hurry and, uh, you know, get away. Come in, who is it? It's me. Hiya, Florence. Come in. Shall I make you some toast? No, thank you. My doctor told me not to eat any more carbon. 
Well, uh, you look kind of upset, Florence. Anything wrong? Well, I'm not complaining or anything, but I've been working for you for six weeks now, and I think it's about time you paid me my salary. But, Florence, we've given you a check each week. You've been paid in full right up to date. Check? That's right, Florence. You've been paid. It's just that instead of money, we gave you a check. That's what I say. I want my money. Florence, can't you understand? You take the check to the bank, and the men will cash it for you after you write your name across the back of it. Well, why should I write my name across the back of it? My name's already on the front. Florence McMichael, $35. It's a bank rule, Florence. It's a state law. Oh, you're just saying that. I bet anything the man wants me to write my name on it so he can ask me for a date. (laughs) Florence, the man isn't asking you for a date, and even if he was, he knows who you are from the front of the check. You know, Florence McMichael, $35. That's it. He's after my money. (laughs) All right, Florence, have it your way. Don't sign your name on the check. Oh, I wouldn't want to do anything illegal. I'd be in a fine fix if a man called the cops and they threw me into the hose gal. Hose gal? (laughs) Florence, it isn't hose gal, it's half (laughs) brawl. You know, Florence, it's not right for you to be running around loose. Dean's right, Florence. Have you ever thought of getting married? Married? Yeah. Well, I don't think a girl ought to rush into these things. What church shall I meet you at? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see it all now. Florence is married. A little ivy-covered cottage with a patter of tiny feet upstairs. Tiny feet? You mean... Sure. And if you've been reading the papers lately, it might even be quadruplets. Oh, just what I've always wanted... Five kids. Florence, you can stay here and file our papers in the mail. Jerry and I have to go see about the recording today. Oh, you're going to make a record? Well, yes, we are. We've been trying to think of songs to do. Have you heard that new one that goes, When you caught me near the chicken coop, Nellie, I knew you'd egg me on? No. There's another one I like. It's called, Don't Go Near the Hayloft, Mother. Pop's in there pitching with the maid. I like is folk music. I heard one last night on the radio. A folk tune? But what was it? Well, it was called It Was Apple Fritter Time, South of Alabama, and after working on the railroad, I courted Sarah Lou, my lady fair, atop old Smokey while eating Jimmy Crack Corn and drinking out of the little brown jug as the whispering green grass and the cool waters told my own true love would never fail me until I did. Oh, you know, that that's a terrible song title. Who sang it? Dick Haynes. Well, for his kind of voice, it's not too bad. Say, Dean, are you really jealous of Dick Haynes? Well, of course not. What makes you say that? Well, you're always mailing him laryngitis germs. <laughs> Jerry, that's silly. It's absolutely impossible to send laryngitis through the mails. I inquired. It is a song I heard on the radio the other night. I heard Burl Ives sing it. It's called Two Black Eyes and a Broken Nose. That's the Curse of a Peeping Tom. <laughs> Sounds like a beat-up song to me. Oh, quiet, you do. Come on, Jerry. We better go down to the recording studio. See you later, Florence. What song do you think we should sing when we make our next record? Oh, I don't know. We ought to try to get something different. (laughs) 
That's what I say. Something different. Something that shows my voice off, too. Well, I don't like to say anything, Jay, but it's my voice that should uh, predominate on our records. <laughs> oh. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing at all. If I'm in your way, I'll step aside. Oh, Jerry. Ah, that's all right. <laughs> I know what I'm not wanting. Go ahead. Go your own way. Turn me out into the cold. Homeless. Friendless. No money. No place to go. Nobody wants me. Two forlorn figures tramping the streets. Two forlorn figures? Yeah. Me and Mayor Haig. <laughs> ah, but don't worry, Dean. I won't stand in your way. What do you care if I'm hungry? A dried-up bag of bones walking aimlessly around in the rain, soaked through to the skin. Cold and wet and clammy and shivering and cold. And Dean? What? You got a hot water bottle? <laughs> Ah, oh, Jerry, now straighten up. We're almost there. And remember when we go in, let me do the talking. Okay, you do the talking. I wouldn't insist on it, but you're so soft. I can't help it, Dean. I've always been soft. I, when I was a baby, the talcum powder used to bruise me. <laughs> well, here we are. Let's go in. Hey, Dean, look at the glass partitions. Yeah, and those fellas inside them are disc jockeys playing recordings. Disc jockeys? Let's open this door and listen. And here's another Bing Crosby record, White Christmas. And here's When the Blue of the Night Meets the Gold of the Day. And here's Tora Laura Laura. Well, who was that? Sinatra breaking Crosby records. <laughs> here's where we go in, Dean. Hi, Mr. Allen. Oh, oh, hello, boys. Boys, glad to see you. Sit down. Oh, uh, by the way, before I forget it, some woman's been hanging around the halls all morning. She wants to see you. Wants to see me? Yes, uh, she's starting a new fan club or something. Well, every little bit helps. Now, have you got a song picked out for us, Mr. Allen? Well, I've been giving it a lot of thought. Now, you boys were pretty good on uh, the money song, and you were even better on that certain party. But this time, we got to do something new, something different. Something different? Well, what's the matter with the way we sing now? Nothing, nothing, but you got to progress. You got to give them something different all the time, something new. Oh, you mean something like uh, classical? Mm, classical? I don't know. What do we know about classical music, Dean? The other night, we were listening to Toscanini, and we could hardly understand it. Well, of course we couldn't. You were making so much noise eating dinner, I couldn't tell if it was Tuscanini or Veal Scalapini. Well, now... <laughs> maybe uh, classical isn't what we want either. Well, uh, you know, I'm Italian. Maybe I could sing something operatic, you know. Ridi Pagliacci. You know, something like that. How was that? Uh, well, uh, it's okay, but Ezio Pinza has been doing that for years, and what did it get him? What'd you say? I say, uh, Ezio Pinza has been doing that for years, and what did it get him? Mary Martin, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> boys, boys, opera is out. After all, we want something popular. I know something different. Do a foreign song like Jean Sablon does. You know, he sings, May I kiss your hand, madame? Your dainty fingertips, je les passe de tulle de patamel de colde. Je les pète de patamel de patamel that's French. <laughs> no, no, boys, you haven't hit it yet. Say, I just happened to think. You know who's one of our... You know who's one of our biggest record sellers? Burl Ives. Yeah, but he sings the folk song. Well, what's wrong with that? Maybe that's the different thing I'm after for you guys. But we don't know anything about that kind of singing. 
Well, you can sure find out. Burl Ives is recording today. Go down the hall, listen to him, and come back and tell me what you think. Okay, you're the boss. See you later. You know, he may be right, Jerry. Maybe we should sing folk tunes. You know, after all, Florence likes them, too. Gee, Dean, I like the way you sing now. Yeah, but maybe it's time I change my style. Change your style? Oh, Dean, when I think of those voice lessons you had, those weeks of training, and all those months of listening to Perry Como records. <laughs> you know, the more I think about it, the more I think Mr. Allen is right. Oh, there you are, Mr. Martin. <laughs> you know, I knew you'd be here today, and I've waited all morning to say hello. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh Hello. Oh! oh, that voice, that voice oh. When you speak, each syllable comes out wearing a sweater Say, lady, if you don't mind, we're... Oh, I suppose I should introduce myself I'm Laura Taproot I'm president of the new Dean Martin fan club But Mrs. Taproot, Dean already has three or four fan clubs now Yes, I know, but our club is novel we only take older members from 50 years up. You mean all the girls in this fan club are 50 years old? Yes. We used to adore H.V. Kaltenborn, but we switched over to Dean Martin. We got tired of having things explained. From now on, we're going to try to figure them out for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when did all this happen? Oh! You should be quite thrilled You won out over so many, many others You see, Vic Damone gets the girls from 16 to 20 Sinatra gets them from 20 to 30 Crosby gets them from 30 to 50 (laughs) Well, there we were, ready and willing (laughs) With uh, no one to swoon over Oh, please, Mr. Martin You you don't think we girls of that age are being silly, do you? No (laughs) You certainly have a right to have your fling Yes before we're all flung out. (laughs) Say, lady. Yes? Are you for real? (laughs) You know, we listen faithfully to your program, Mr. Martin, and when you sing to us, well, the first night, Mrs. Crabtree dropped three stitches. (laughs) And when you sang your second song... The knitting stayed where it was and Mrs. Crabtree dropped. Well, all I can say is that I'm very flattered. I don't know quite what to say. This fan club of yours sounds like it's a very nice group of women. Oh, yes. We're mostly widows. Some of us are graying a little. (laughs) But I always say the young men of today are making a big mistake in not considering older women in their plans. Uh, But uh, really, I don't think many men would agree with you there, Mrs. Taprat Roots. Nobody would prefer, say, uh, nobody would uh, prefer Marjorie Maine if they could get Ava Gardner. I would, but I'm only 23 years old. What do I know? (laughs) Say, young man, are you really only 23 years old? That's right. (laughs) Would you mind if I chucked you under the chin? Go ahead. Oh, bye. I've been on the main course so long, I'd forgotten what an hors d'oeuvre looked like. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid I've taken up too much of your time, but before I go, I wonder if I could ask a favor. Well, go right ahead, ma'am. Well, we girls have a favorite song, and we were wondering if you'd sing it for us. It's an old one called, Come Where My Love Lies. 
Dreaming? Of course we are! Who cares? <laughs> I'd be glad to sing a song you want, Mrs. Taproot. Oh, thank you and goodbye, young man. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I'm all agog with excitement. Tomorrow, I throw away my Dr. Show's foot pads and start flying. Goodbye. Bye. Dean, are you really going to sing that song she asked for? Sure, Jerry, but first we've got to go down to the hall and listen to Burl Ives. Somehow, I just can't see myself singing a folk tune. Me either. But Mr. Allen is a smart man. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. You know, can't hurt us to listen to Burl Ives. Well, this is the recording studio, Jerry. Hey, mister, we want to talk to Burl Ives. Quiet. Mr. Ives is about to record. Okay, I'm sorry. Shh, Jerry. Let's listen. Great-grandfather met great-grandmother when she was a shy miss. And great-grandfather won great-grandmother With words more or less like this Lavender blue, dilly-dilly Lavender green If I were king, dilly-dilly I'd need a queen Who told me so, dilly-dilly Who told me so I told myself, dilly-dilly, I told me so. If your dilly-dilly heart feels a dilly-dilly way, and if you answer yes, in a pretty little church on a dilly-dilly day, you'll be wed in a dilly-dilly dress of lavender blue, dilly-dilly, lavender green. Then I'll be king, dilly-dilly, and you'll be my queen. Well, that was wonderful, Mr. Ives. Why, thank you. I don't think we've met. Well, my name is Dean Martin. Well, well, uh, how do you do? And this is my partner. Well, well, how do you do, Dean? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Mr. Ives, I'm Jerry Lewis, and I don't look like Howdy Doody. <laughs> Howdy Doody's a television puppet with a silly wooden head and no expression on its face and clumsy hands and feet and... Dean? What? Pull up my strings. I'm ad-libbing too much. <laughs> Jerry's my partner, Mr. Ives. He's a great kid and a great comedian. Mr. Ives, Jerry and I wanted to ask your advice about something. Yeah, Mr. Ives, we admire you. Last year, I read your book, Wayfaring Stranger. Cover to cover, and I loved it. Oh, thank you, Jerry. Oh, that's nothing. Next year, I'm going to read the pages between. <laughs> when we came in the studio just now, Mr. Ives, you were singing Lavender Blue, but uh, I thought you always sang Western songs. I like his Western tunes, don't you, Jerry? Well, I admire it powerful much, partner. And I'm an authority on Western music. Uh, you're an authority on Western music? Sure. Because I've lived in the West and I loves it. Partner, I want to tell all the folks that when I puts my Stetson and slides my Levi's into the riding leather on a bucking bronco to round up a herd of doggies, well, they're sure going to be rustlers on the stage tonight down by the old corral. Look how they're staring at me. <laughs> Has Jerry ever been in the West at all, Dean? Well, about a year ago, we played a date at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. Flamingo Hotel? That sounds like a dude ranch to me. Dude ranch? Why, partner, it's really a dude ranch. All the horses have Tony Cold waves. Oh, come on, Jerry. Dude Ranch, 
Why, I didn't call my horse old paint. I called him old lipstick. <laughs> old, old lipstick? That's right. You heard of the flying red horse? Yeah. Well, old lipstick didn't fly. He just skipped along. Jerry. You asked me if it was a dude ranch, eh, partner? Why, when I'd ride old lipstick real hard, he didn't perspire. He broke out in taboo. Jerry. Jerry, Jerry, what's all this got to do with, with your being an authority on Western music? Well, I am. And I really appreciate the way you can play that guitar, Mr. Ives. I appreciate it especially because me. I play the guitar like crazy. A professional? Nah. How come? Who wants to hire a crazy guitar player? Aw, <laughs> oh, come on. Stop it, Jerry. We came in here to ask Mr. Ives about singing folk songs. I know we did, Dean. But first, I want him to hear something new. This music is so new, it doesn't have a name yet. Well, what do you think, Mr. Ives? Jerry, tell me one thing. Are you for real? <laughs> you know something? I'm not for sure. I was singing. I was singing Bop. Bop? I thought you swallowed an Alka-Seltzer sidewise. Jerry, if you'll keep quiet for just two minutes, I'll tell Mr. Ives why we came in to see him. You see, Capitol Records wants us to record another number, and uh, we were wondering if we might try a folk tune for our next recording. A folk tune, eh? Mm -hmm. Well, I've never heard you sing, Dean, but I'm told that you've got a very fine baritone voice and that you sing a nice ballad. Oh, he does. Go ahead. Yeah. Dean, sing a few notes for Mr. Ives. Well, okay. Here's the number I'm singing on the show this week. I don't see me In your eyes anymore Why can't I Make them shine as before I don't see you for your heart and your kiss When you should sigh That your mind you is There was a time Life was fine Love was ecstasy but now I doubt what the outcome will be. I pray you'll say I'm the one you adore. Then I'll see me. In your eyes as before. <laughs> that was beautiful, Dean. <laughs> I mean, that was beautiful, Dean. <laughs> Wasn't it, Mr. Ives? Oh, yes, it sounded very good, Dean. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think I can sing folk songs? That's a hard question. It's all a question, you know, of your background. If you were brought up in the country like I was, why, well, you'd sing folk songs as easy as uh, falling out of bed. Yeah, but I've been singing popular songs all my life. 
Well, that's the best racket, Dean. Sing uh, popular songs. Uh, that gets the girls. There's no point in singing folk songs like me. Why? Uh, what do you get with folk songs? Folks? Folks. <laughs> wrong with folks. I've got a wonderful set. <laughs> well, you boys don't realize how lucky you are. You got started in show business fast with an agent and in good places instead of the backwoods like I did. You started in the backwoods? I was so far back that for the first two years, my agent was Daniel Boone. <laughs> you see, you can't really know about a folk song like the Foggy Foggy Do unless you're born in the, in the country. I was born in Newark, and they understand about Foggy Foggy Do. Only there they call it Jersey Lightning. <laughs> Just what I said. See, you don't understand folk music. Now, uh, uh, how can you sing a song like, Well, Jimmy Crack Corn and I Don't Care if you don't know what it means? Oh, I know. Jimmy Crack Corn and I Don't Care. That's about a comedian named Jimmy Cracking Corny Jokes and I Don't Care if he is laying in there. <laughs> Gee, Burley, it, it must have been pretty rugged for you growing up in the back country that way. No, I had fun when I was a kid. I spent a whole, my whole boyhood working. Gathering eggs, we always had plenty of milk and real vegetables, fresh fruit everywhere. Gee, what a funny place to grow up in a delicatessen. <laughs> well, I don't I think just... I'd have minded being born in the country, Burl. Me neither. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the cantaloupe play. <laughs> the deer and the cantaloupe play? Yeah, he's back in the delicatessen again. <laughs> You know something, Jerry? Burl Ives has got nothing to worry about. Say, Burl. <laughs> yes, Dave. <laughs> uh, we want to thank you for being with us today, and uh, we enjoyed hearing you sing your sensational tune, Lavender Blue. Well, thank you very much. It's and a we, great we, pleasure, we, yeah. We thank enjoyed you very the much. wonderful... It's okay, fellas. Well, it's all right. Well, we enjoyed the thank wonderful... Thank you very work. much. It's all yeah, right. Yeah, we enjoyed... Thank you, Burl. Thank you. The Martin and Lewis Show, transcribed in New York, is produced by Robert L. Redd and written by Dick McKnight, Ray Allen, Roger Price, and Sid Resnick. This is Bob Warren suggesting you tune in to your NBC station next Sunday evening at the same hour for The Martin and Lewis Show! Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Aldridge Family, followed by The Saint. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.